from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up. At the same time that big tech exercises massive power, it also enjoys massive corporate welfare through the effect of Section 230, a special immunity from liability that nobody else gets. That was Texas Senator Ted Cruz yesterday at the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearing entitled Breaking the News, Censorship, Suppression, and the 2020 Election. What is Congress prepared to do to address big tech censorship and monopoly? We'll talk with the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, later here on Washington Watch. And the third annual Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom, inaugurated by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo back in 2017, was held this year in Poland virtually because of the coronavirus. The Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom, Sam Brownback, joins us in just a moment. And we've been hearing a lot since the election about a company named Dominion that provides voting systems in 28 states. Officials in Texas rejected Dominion as a supplier of voting systems after an examination of the system saying they had not done an acceptable job of preventing or detecting human error. We'll talk with one of the members of the Texas Review team, Dr. James Sneeringer. And while we are still concerned about the election looking in our rearview mirror, we can't miss what might be straight ahead. Warning. There are at least five evil things Joe Biden has promised to do. What are they? Terry Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of CNS News, is here. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parler, it is uh, at T Perkins. And let me remind you, uh, it's Wednesday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Pray, vote, stand. Still praying, still standing. Uh, I hope people aren't still voting. In some parts, they may be. At least some are alleging that. Uh, Just joking. Uh, We will be praying, and we will continue to stand. Join us 8 p.m. Eastern Time tonight at PrayVoteStand.org. The 2020 Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom has come to a close. More than 50 nations and international organizations convened in the virtual event hosted by the Polish government. This being the first year it was not hosted in the United States. And while religious freedom victories were celebrated, a key focus was put on China and their many human rights abuses. The communist regime says they are moving away from their poorly maintained detention facilities that target Uyghur Muslims, but their proposed alternative could be just as crippling. Joining me now to talk about this and more is the ambassador at large for international religious freedom, our good friend Sam Brownback. Ambassador, welcome back to the program. Hey Tony, always good to join you. Well, it was an it was an easy commute to Poland this year, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. I was hoping to be over there, but they've been having a spike of COVID, and so it didn't work out. What I was really pleased about is now we've had the third uh, annual of these. The Secretary Pompeo uh, tasked me saying I want to make sure that these continue on an annual basis. So now they've gone overseas. Poland hosted it. Brazil announced they're going to host it the one next year. So that we have this annual conclave of people globally pushing for religious freedom because it is a global topic. And it's it's one we're seeing some successes. But, boy, do we need a lot of effort in this space. Now, I will say, Senator, uh, Ambassador, they uh, sometimes refer back, refer back to your title as senator. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Ambassador Brownback was senator of Kansas. Uh, prior to that, he was a congressman from Kansas. Uh, but in between, he was also governor of Kansas. I- is there any title you haven't carried, uh, Sam? <laughs> well, my favorite one is grandpa. Uh, I've got six grandchildren, so that that's the one I'm working on the most. I like the best. You know, I, I haven't experienced that one yet, but everybody tells me it's a good one. Um, it's a great one. <laughs> but before I before I, I, I chase rabbits there or, or grandkids, <laughs> the I was at first a little disappointed when it was announced that the ministerial was going to go overseas. Although Poland's great. I was over in Poland, um, I guess, the beginning of the year for a conference speaking over there on religious freedom in my capacity at uh, as chairman of USERF. But I, I was a little concerned it was going out. But now I see it as a good thing because I think this helps solidify it as an international event. It, it does. And, 
it makes the movement go global. And this administration has been fantastic on religious freedom. They put more effort into this topic than probably all the prior administrations combined. And it shows we now have a global movement on religious freedom. We have an annual gathering of this taking place. We now have an alliance of 32 nations that are willing to be the tip of the spear and push on these topics as they come up in various venues around the world. I mean, we have our issues here at home, obviously, but this is really key that there is now a global religious freedom movement that wasn't there prior to this administration. Without question, uh, this administration has done more to advance religious freedom internationally. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, doing an outstanding job of making this the number one foreign policy objective of uh, this State Department, of course, that promoted by the president as well. Uh, so before I get to, to China and what's happening there, uh, are, you feel pretty confident that uh, regardless of what may be the outcome of this contested election, that the ministerial will go forward in uh, future years? I do. Uh, as I said, yesterday Brazil announced that they will host the ministerial in 2021. We're already talking to another country about hosting in 2022. Uh, and um, uh, then you've got all these religious freedom roundtables around the world. And, you know, honestly, Tony, it's really like this persecution has been going on for some period of time. Christian persecution is at the highest level in human history. It's like the world didn't even know it existed or that we've, we've turned over this rock or lift the carpet up. And here are all these poor people being being persecuted and being sent to jail and killed simply for peacefully practicing their faith. And as we've drawn attention to that around the world, much of the, uh, the world has said, yes, that is going, and we should be standing up against this. And so we're, we're seeing a lot more action because the attention has finally come to this area. I would think that the United Arab Emirates would be a good s- spot. Uh, they've been very eager to showcase not only their country, but uh, their embracing of religious uh, tolerance? They, they would be. I, they've got to repeal their apostasy and blasphemy laws. They, they still have those, and that's the problem in a lot of the it'd, Islamic world. They still be a have good those motivation. Uh, laws. be a good motivation well, for them to repeal. Well, it, uh, that's a good thought. Maybe that's the way we present it to them. Uh, they, but they have been outstanding, honestly, of uh, really opening up in this space. And uh, and they've been a lead country in that Islamic world, which has been so tough. Really, the North Africa, Middle East, most of the Christians have been driven out. But now, in some of these countries, uh, they're being invited uh, back in and uh, of sorts. Yeah. yeah, there's some very encouraging things, and, and I think that you're smart uh, to go ahead and line up these other countries to host this ministerial so that this issue continues to march forward and people uh, all around the world uh, have the benefit of experiencing freedom, freedom of religion. Let's uh, let's go to China because uh, you have expressed concern. China, you know, a lot of international pressure on their, quote-unquote, concentration camps where they've been uh, or work camps, re-education camps, whatever you want to call them, where they've had the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, but now they're, 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 if they move to something, it's a move to technology, which is just as repressive in many ways. I, I think uh, over the longer term, Tony, it's worse. I've, had, I've talked to people, uh, uh, Chinese, uh, secondhand, because in some, many cases they aren't willing to talk to me uh, in person because they're afraid that they'll be found out and locked up. But they, a number of the Chinese religious people, are more concerned about this than during Mao's great cultural revolution and all the problems that they experienced. And because this one is so pernicious and pervasive, these cameras and artificial intelligence systems and facial recognition, uh, and it's going to isolate people from being able to be a part of the functioning society and – it's going to drive other people away from being connected to anybody that's a, yeah. a, a religious adherent. I think this is this is the future of oppression, and unfortunately, it is here now. Well, the other aspect of, of this is that that type of repression can be exported. 
whereas it's kind of hard to export the concentration camps, the re-education camps, but this technology can be used by other totalitarian regimes. And is, and is, and it's not that expensive. Once you get the data and the system set up, um, it's not that hard. And yet, you can virtually control people's participation in the economy, and particularly if, if they're uh, going to electronic money uh, in places, you right. can shut their money off where they can't even buy or sell uh, well, in, if they practice their faith. In China, I mean that that is actually happening in most in a lot of places where they've gone cashless, uh, and then they can control purchases using that social credit score. It is. And that, that's to me so it's so scary. And here, Tony, too, the interesting thing about it, it's happening in one of the most remote places in the world is where it started, in a place that's probably one of the, the furthest from an ocean that you can be in, uh, on this earth. And here's where they're perfecting uh, that system of controlling people uh, and then being able to, to export the system to totalitarian regimes or places that, uh, that that want to try to use it. I, this one really, really concerns me and has since I've first seen it. Yeah, and before long they'll be uh, making everybody wear masks, too. Um, <laughs> but, but, but uh, in all seriousness, it, it, explain to our, our, our listeners what the social credit score is and how that functions and how China's using that. It, what what happens is that, that they they enact a social credit score system, and it, I think the best way for people to think about it is your own credit score. Uh, you know, and if you have a bad debt somewhere, if somebody files bankruptcy or this or that, your credit score goes down. Your social credit score is what the Chinese Communist Party wants to value or devalue. And so in their case, if you go to church, you get marked down on your social credit score. If you're seen as a religious adherent that uh, is sincere about your faith, you get further marked down. And then you get a low social credit score that they can keep you from getting certain apartments, getting your kids into certain schools, being able to travel at all inside or even or certainly outside uh, of China. So they can then start to really control your movement and your ability to function in this culture. And anybody that pings you on your cell phone, which they can track that, then too, you start to get marked down by having a bad social credit score of somebody that's worse than you in their uh, minds. So it is a form of ostracizing these individuals, almost creating this uh, leper colony within the uh, w- w- within the society. It, that's a good way of looking at it. It's kind of an electronic uh, colony, uh, and then your friends and your family start pushing on you, saying, "Will you stop going to church? You're hurting me." And then right. they have all this this uh, social. So they do the Exclusion. contract. They do the contact tracking. Um, they, I mean, it's I'm, yeah, it's it's frightening. And um, but I tell you, I think it's been more difficult for them to advance it because of the work that you, uh, Secretary Pompeo, and President Trump ha- ha- has done uh, have done in advancing religious freedom. So, uh, Ambassador, thank you for joining us. And again, thank you for the outstanding job you've done as Ambassador of International Religious Freedom. Thanks, Tony. God bless you. Take care. All right. All right. Sam Brambeck, Ambassador Large for International Religious Freedom. All right. Coming back, uh, coming up next, when we come back, Dominion, a uh, company you've probably heard a lot about. Why did Texas reject their voting system? We're going to talk about uh, that with one of the members of the review team next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. 
There's a daily reading, just a couple of chapters a day, with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Parlor, it's at T. Perkins. And let me remind you tonight, Pray Vote Stand, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, PrayVoteStand.org. Join us. Uh, we'll have Eric McTaxis will be with me. Uh, Michelle Bachman will be joining me. And Congressman Jody Heiss of Georgia will be uh, with us praying over what is unfolding in our country today. Again, that's tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, PrayVoteStand.org. Join us. Speaking of what's unfolding, uh, you probably heard a lot in the news about uh, Dominion Voting Systems, a company out of uh, Colorado, uh, that uh, operates in about 28 states. One state it's not operating in is the state of Texas. Uh, Dr. Jim Sneeringer uh, is an expert in electronic data communication systems. He's also the co-founder of iVoterGuide and a member of iVoterGuide's board of directors. And the state of Texas, in part because of his examination and uh, others, took a pass on the system, and he joins us now to explain why. Uh, Dr. Snaringer, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tony. I'm happy to be here. Um, now, uh, first off, tell our folks what iVoterGuide uh, is. Well, iVoterGuide is a nationwide voter guide that um, lets you put in your address and, and find out who you can vote for, and then um, they'll show you a rating of, of conservative or liberal. And then if you click on that person, you can drill down and see the information that was gathered. So there's uh, 30,000 hours worth of information gathering that went into iVoterGuide this cycle. And there are about three and a half million people using the uh, data to uh, to vote. And yeah, we're and happy I, to be FRC's voter guide provider. Yeah, and I was going to say that probably a lot of our listeners know what iVoterGuide is because we promoted it heavily uh, during the election, but I wanted to make the, the connection uh, for them uh, with you. But you also wore another hat, and that was the voting system examination of Dominion voting systems. And um, the Texas took a pass on using this. You were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but were you designated by the Attorney General to do the review of the system? 
Uh, I was one of a, a group of five people that were designated by the various uh, Secretary of State and the Attorney General to uh, review the system, combination of attorneys and techies. So why did Texas pass on using Dominion voting systems? Well, there were a number of reasons. Um, I, I would say one of the biggest one was that the software was just incredibly difficult to understand, I mean, to install. Mm-hmm. So um, we watched for about eight hours while people who worked for Dominion tried to go through the 500 steps that are required to install their software. And they, um, about noon, they gave up. And I guess it turned out they'd skipped one step, and, and it took them the rest of the afternoon to recover. Now, this was the people that actually were selling the systems? Y- yes. So at least they were representatives of Dominion that were, were sent to the state of Texas to demonstrate the system to the um, Secretary of State and the people who were um, who were authorized to um, to evaluate the voting systems. Well, I would boy that would be a, that would sure be a warning sign to me if the very people who have uh, put the systems together and are selling them have a hard time installing the software. That would suggest to me that this is not something the average uh, person could do then. Yes, it's not something the average person could do. And this is the second time that um, we declined to certify this equipment. Were, were there any other vulnerabilities besides the the difficulty of installing the software? Any other vulnerabilities, uh, errors that uh, might not be caught or uh, other things that raised uh, concerns? Um, well, there were other concerns. Um, there were some uh, messages that were difficult to understand. Um, there was one that said, tell people they were casting their vote when they were not. There's a, um, a USB port, a universal serial port that was opened. And in other words, it was accessible to a voter. And uh, one of the examiners plugged its phone into his phone into it, and it started reading files off his mobile phone. Wow. So that's a good idea. These systems are supposed to be sort of sealed um, so that they can't be affected. No, it didn't actually um, you know, cause any mistakes or votes or anything, but it sure was a red flag. Now, I in, in reading one of the reports, I saw where when you have, um, I, I would assume, like a um, straight party vote, I guess that would be like in a primary, uh, there were some issues that came up. Yes, um, there were some issues that came up, um, and it had to do with um, with if you voted straight party and then you wanted to cross over on one candidate, it didn't work the way that was um, required by state law. Um, that has the state of Texas uh, discontinued straight party voting as of the first of the year, so that's no longer. Um, relevant, but it, it was a problem that we recognized at the time. Um, so the the, the 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 Texas taking a pass on this was any other states that you're aware of that after reviewing and examining the Dominion voting systems also uh, decided not to use them? That's a good question. I'm trying to think, and I'm not aware of any. Okay. Well, it certainly uh, should turn some heads that um, some states, at least Texas, is not using one of the largest states in the country. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Uh, Great to talk with you, and and, uh, thanks for the great work on iVoterGuide. Great, great resource. Very uh, thankful to partner with you guys in uh, making that information available to people. Okay, thank you so much. All right, uh, Dr. Jim Sneeringer. All right, uh, when we come back, warning. Warning, five evil things that Joe Biden plans to do, at least five. Uh, Terry Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of CNS News, is here next to talk about that. I mean, I know we're looking in the rearview mirror. This election's not quite over. We're still in the midst of it, but we got to look at what's straight ahead. 
and there are warning signs of what a Biden-Harris administration will be pushing day one. Day one. Terry Jeffrey is here next. Don't go away. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The Federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Five evil things Biden plans to do as president. Just five? I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Joining me now to talk more about this, Terry Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of CNSNews.com. Terry, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me on. I guess for the sake of uh, space and time, you had to limit it to five? (laughs) That's exactly right. I agree with you. There's more than five. But uh, for the moment, I just focused on these five, which I think are particularly important. I think they are starting very at the very time. And these are not things that you're suggesting that he will do. These are things he said he would do. Right. These are things actually every single one of these is documented on Joe Biden's campaign website. He has a place on there he calls Joe Biden's vision where he has all these pages for his policy initiatives and promises. And every single one of these five things is cited there. Number one. Number one is that he promises that as president, he would codify a right to kill unborn children by codifying Roe v. Wade to federal law. So you make a federal law making it trying to make it impossible for states to uh, limit or prohibit abortion. You know, what I, I found very interesting as they began to push that in the Democratic primary is that was a acknowledgement that Roe v. Wade is not the law of the land. It is a decision by the Supreme Court that they've been parading around as the law. Right. And, and we all know from the fights we've had over Supreme Court nominations over the year, over the years that uh, a 5-4 uh, pro-life majority on the Supreme Court could overturn Roe and send the abortion issue entirely back to the states. And, of course, the Democrats have all kinds of things going on to try and prevent that from happening, everything from the way they've dealt with Republican Supreme Court nominees to their idea now that they may pack the court. But, yeah, so Biden wants a federal law that makes abortion nationwide a quote-unquote right, which I say is evil. Well, it doesn't stop there to add to that evil, to intensify it, is to force every American taxpayer to fund it. 
Correct. And that's uh, what I've cited in my column is evil number two. Biden is promising to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, which is put into federal bills, particularly the HHS appropriation bill, to prevent federal money from being used to fund abortion. It used to universally prohibit federal funding of abortion. Uh, in more recent years, it's allowed uh, exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother. Uh, but he wants to completely repeal the, the Hyde Amendment. And beyond that, what he wants to do is he wants to create a quote-unquote public option under Obamacare, which he describes as a Medicare-like health insurance plan that would cover abortions. So in two different ways, after he would codify abortion as a nationwide right, he'd make everybody who pays taxes in America fund abortions. And then he would go beyond that to force businesses, private family-owned businesses, to provide health insurance that covers abortion-inducing drugs. Exactly. That's what I described as evil number three. He says in his plan that he wants to go back before Hobby Lobby to the mandate that the Obama administration originally issued when he was vice president that uh, forced every family-owned business in America or the, of a certain size to cover all FDA-approved contraceptives in their health care plans, which included abortion-inducing drugs and devices, which is what the Hobby Lobby case was all about. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court never really settled that issue. And so this is a place where Joe Biden right, right away could do some serious damage. Number four on his list of evils? Number four is he, he says that on day one as president, he's going to force public schools and, and colleges to uh, to treat biological males as if they're females. He's, he literally says they're going to have to let transgenders pick their own identity, their gender identity, he calls it, and then they can play on the sports team they choose and use the locker rooms and restrooms that they choose. So literally Joe Biden will order public schools to say that anatomical males can play on the girls' sports teams, use the girls' shower rooms, and use the girls' restrooms. Completely outrageous absolutely evil, but that's what he's promising to do. And number five on the list. And number five, which follows from that, is he says that he would make insurance companies cover what he calls gender confirmation surgery, quote-unquote, which is really the mutilation of boys and girls to make them uh, at least resemble the other sex that they want to claim to be. He would make insurance companies do that. Similar to Hobby Lobby, he'd make you know, family-owned businesses cover abortion-inducing drugs and devices. He'd also make insurance companies provide that, quote-unquote, surgery, which is actually mutilation. By the way, Tony, these these issues, particularly those last two, in my view, did got, not get nearly the kind of exposure and discussion they deserved uh, before the election. I think there are many Americans who have no idea that Joe Biden's going to order public schools to let boys play on their girls' sports teams and let boys use their girls' locker rooms. To me, that's such a huge issue. And right. it's not just evil. It shows a distortion of mind on Biden's part. And I don't think there's any way he could defend it in a real debate. And uh, so I, th I think we are going to have a debate, unfortunately, on that issue in the future. And I, I hope that people very aggressively go after Joe Biden and his allies on it because it would simply be insane right. for that to be uh, the case. Terry Jeffrey, on the way out here, um, how many of these five can he do without Congress? Uh, my understanding can do at least three of them. Yeah. So the other two, the outcome of the Georgia special election is going to be critical. Absolutely crucial. Absolutely right. crucial. Terry Jeffrey, as always, great to have you on the program, my friend. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tony. Talk to you later. Uh, you can read Terry's uh, article. Go to TonyPerkins.com and follow the links over. Uh, a lot of evil coming. Coming up next here, though, is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham. Don't go away. We hear from him next. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. 
There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality. I'm Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Parlor, it's at T. Perkins. Again, let me remind you, join me uh, tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman will be with me, Eric McTaxis, and uh, Georgia Congressman Jody Heiss. Pray, vote, stand. PrayVoteStand.org at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, yesterday on Capitol Hill, an explosive hearing, an insightful hearing, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey were the usual sp- suspects at the big tech hearing. The Senate Judiciary Committee had a multitude of questions for the social media giants, and quite frankly, I think the, their answers raised more questions. One of the questions is, is there collusion between the big tech giants to kind of censor conservatives? Uh, here's what Josh Hawley had to say yesterday. In the late 19th century, the heads of the biggest corporations in America, the robber barons, got together and they set rates, they set prices, they determined how they would control information flow, they determined how they get rid of competition. And uh, I'll be darned if we aren't right back there again, except for this time you're the robber barons. Your companies are the most powerful companies in the world, and I want to talk about how you're coordinating together to control information. Well, joining me now to talk about what came forward in yesterday's hearing is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who chaired yesterday's hearing, U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Senator, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. It's fascinating to sit there. And I, I did have more questions than answers. <laughs> well, so are they uh, the new robber barons? Well, they have control over information flow, unlike any group in the history of the world. They're a television station, they're a radio station, they're a publisher. They're all these things combined because we, the public, use their services. And here's the question. At what point is it in the public interest to um, allow folks to sue when they feel like they're wronged, which you can't do today, or provide regulation uh, over how they engage in business? They're the only people I know of, Tony, that can't be sued and live under no regulatory scheme. Now, 
your program. It's licensed by the government. You buy Spectrum, you have rules of the road. If you slander somebody on your program, uh, they can sue the station, not just you. Uh, on social media outlets, you have no recourse. If they take your content down because they don't like your post or don't like your Facebook video, you have no recourse against them. And all these things need to be on the table. They do. But you put something else on the table, which I found intriguing uh, as I watched the hearing. And it's one that I've actually had experience in as a legislator on another subject matter, but it was the addiction of social media. I dealt with addiction of gambling as a legislator in Louisiana, and there is a science behind that that draws people in, and it is a public health issue. I thought it was very interesting that you brought that point forward about social media. Okay, so save tobacco. Uh, During World War II, the government would provide cigarettes to the troops because it was a socially accepted, you know, uh, product. And we learned later on that the tobacco companies understood it was addictive and had health hazards associated with it, and so thus we now regulate tobacco. My question is, do the social media outlets, do they have the ability to make their product addictive? And the answer is yes. If you've seen the movie Social Dilemma, uh, it's a pretty good expose about how they can manipulate getting you to go back to your phone and go back to these sites. And the question was, do you believe that your product, Facebook and others, has an addictive element? All the medical research seems to suggest that particularly for younger people, it becomes very addictive and very destructive. So I'm going to continue to pursue this line of thinking as to whether or not we need to regulate these social media outlets from a public health point of view and their business practices. Well, when you combine the two issues that uh, you were focusing on yesterday in the hearing, when you, if there's an addictive nature where you draw people in and this becomes the source of their information and then you control what information you allow in and what viewpoints right. you allow them to see, that uh, is, borrowing from Senator Cruz's comments yesterday, that's a recipe for a totalitarian regime. Yeah, I think so. And, and when you look at it this way, number one, you have a Twitter site probably, or maybe, I don't know, maybe you've left Twitter, but you have a Facebook page. These technologies have enriched our lives in many ways, but there's the dark side of it. There's the addictive nature of it. Uh, sexual predators are out there all over social media, and we have a bill called the Earn It Act where you take away Section 230 liability protections against social media outlets unless they harden their sites against child exploitation, sexual exploitation. In other words, they have to earn their protection. We have the same concept for terrorism. Terrorism, terrorists use these media sites to incite others to their cause. So what I'm looking at is trying to come up with best business practices. What should social media outlets be doing in terms of making it less addictive? How, how do they control the flow of terrorism and child sexual exploitation? What kind of oversight do we have regarding who they put down and take up when it comes to content and come up with a system, maybe self-regulated with government auditing. I don't want the government to pick and choose what we say, but these companies have the power of government in in many ways, and something's got to give. Right. I mean, I'm not, and I know you're in the same position, and most of the Republicans on the committee, same position. You know, we're not for big government overreach. I mean, we're not for, you know, I'm not a big fan of having every fast food restaurant you go into the calories next to the uh, the big double mac cheeseburger or whatever it is. You know, I'd rather not know how many calories I'm going to consume. Um, Or or the, the mayor of New York telling you can only have a drink of 16 ounces, not 32 ounces, you know. Um. But but we're talking about the, something I think long term is not only, as you've pointed out, with the addiction aspects of this, it is causing mental illness, according to researchers, in young people. So you've got a health component here, but then you have an information component that long term does tremendous damage to our republic and to the education of our citizens. When you look at where people get their news more and more people are turning to social media sites like Facebook. They don't tune in to the nightly news and and, and other traditional sources like newspapers are dying, right? So when a social media site 
puts a flag on your post or takes down your video or, you know, censors um, what you have to say, then that's an editorial decision like a paper. Like the New York Post decided to print an expose about Hunter Biden's uh, relationship in the Ukraine. Well, both Twitter and Facebook decided to stop dissemination of that of those articles. So if that's not editorial control, I don't know what would be. So should they be treated like a publisher, like an editor? Should they should they have a regulatory scheme? Because the key word is here is manipulation. It's one thing for you to go in by a big gulp if that's what you want to do. It's another thing for a company to be able to manipulate the content of what you see, how you see it, when you see it, and to use their product to get you to see it in a way you don't realize you're being manipulated. Right. So that's this is the world in which we live in children. You know, your program focuses on the family. Let me tell you, social media can enrich the family. It can be the darkest force for your yeah. children, and we've got to get, get a grip on this. It, 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 you're absolutely right. Technology is a great thing, but at the same time, it's a double-edged sword. It can be an evil thing in the hands of the wrong person. Television is the same way. Television was a great yeah. invention. Exactly. Uh, quite frankly, I think it's the worst thing on Earth uh, right now. <laughs> Uh, be, just because of, I mean, look, I think it's dumbed down our society because it's spoon-fed people information. And just as social media is doing, I think it is altering reality for people because it is only allowing them to see the perspective that these big tech liberal giants want them to see. Well, particularly when you're in your formative years, I mean, the influence of the parent and of the church and other institutions, you're in competition, right? Mm-hmm. Every parent's in competition with the attention of your child, with the school, with the, the peers, with now social media. Right. And we need to level that playing field because they have a lot of influence over what right. you see and when you see it and how to think about things, Google particularly. And it's the challenge of, I think, my political generation is to come up with a way to control this before we lose control. But the first step is, number one, uncovering. What is actually yes. taking place, and that is a part of what these hearings were doing. Let me let me just ask you this question: Is there any question that these big tech giants, talking about Twitter and Facebook, are engaging in censorship? Is there is there any question that they're well, doing? Well, there's no no doubt that I mean yeah. they will say that they're flagging content. You know, this is not true. Uh, this is as a, our fact checkers say it's not true. They'll take down a post because they think. Okay, here's the question: This posting violates our community standards. This posting failed our fact check. Well, here's the question. Who sets your community standards and who does the fact checking? So the question for all of us is, do we feel like the community standards they're using represents our community? And that's why I want to know more about what community standards mean and who does the fact checking. So based on what you've seen, what you've heard in your committee, is there any question that this censorship has a bias against conservative viewpoints? No, no question that, you know, where are all these companies located? Okay, they're located in California. 99% of their political givings to Democrats. The Democrats, here's the odd thing about the hearing, they wanted them to do more. They wanted them to take more content down. And Republicans were worried about them having power over content. So you had Democrats very upset with them for a completely different reason, that they weren't doing enough to deal with what they consider hate speech. And our concern was that they're using community standards and fact-checking in a liberal, biased way that we don't get a fair shake. Now, what would fix all this? Uh, If you could sue, if they took your content down, they would think twice about taking it down. If you could create a system where you gave them guidance, and if they ran afoul of the guidance, you could sue. That would change your behavior. There's two things I've learned uh, as a lawyer and as a politician. If people feel like they can't be sued and they can't be regulated at all, there is no downside. That's a pretty hard thing. That's the wild, wild west. Right. That's what we have now. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Um, in fact, I've, I've had conversations with a number of trial lawyers. I think it would be a great catfight. <laughs> Uh, to, That's their to, worst nightmare. Well, I mean, you think about it. I mean, the, the left, the, the, the trial lawyers tend to line up on the left with the Democrats. Um, but, you know, 
their well, ideology. Money that too. I, I know. I used, to, I used to do trial work, and let me tell you, if you wanted to change this overnight, say you can make any decision you want to make. Section 230 is no longer the law of the land. You just got to answer to people if they see you. It would change I, everything. I, I agree 100%. Here's the question for you, Senator Graham. How do you get that done? Well, you got to find bipartisanship. And here's what I think. I think there's growing bipartisanship around the idea of transparency, that looking how the algorithms work, that liberals and conservatives have different problems, but they have a common view mm-hmm. that these platforms need to have some accountability they don't have today. And what I'd like to do is if you're going to have liability protection, you have to earn it. That if you're not going to allow a parent to sue you because some sexual predator got on their website or into their system, then you've got to prove that you did everything you could to stop them. So my goal is to incentivize incentivize them to do better. If you have liability protection, you have to earn it. And I want transparency into community standards, how the algorithm how, how the algorithms work. Yeah. You know, I, I, Senator, I think you are absolutely correct. I think you you could save the, a lot of time for the government in terms of regulation if you just remove yep. Section 230 and allow the trial lawyers to go after those deep pockets <laughs> of big tech. It would change everything overnight. It, it would. I, maybe there's a middle ground where they have to earn their liability protections, but change is going to come. These platforms are just too powerful, and uh, they have a lot of potential uh, to wreak havoc on, on, on the country as well yeah. as enlighten the country. So we've got to find that balance. Well, and, and, and I'm actually one of those conservatives that is that actually likes some trial lawyers uh, because I think they provide a service. <laughs> well, they uh, have in the past. They've, done, they, they, they've, they've held people accountable. They, they have. They need to be held accountable. I think that well, one final question for you, Senator, and, and sure. because it's, we could do a whole program on this question I'm going to ask, and we only got two minutes left. Sure. But. We talk about liberal conservative, Republican Democrat divide. Are we? I mean, what my twenty-five years? You've been in this a little bit longer. Yeah. But but I see the two sides moving farther and farther apart. Well, so there's elements in the Democratic Party that are destroying your grandparents' Democratic Party. Here's the odd thing: Donald Trump has brought the Republican Party together with your libertarian, sort of a national security type guy like me and you. Mm-hmm. No matter who you are, you know, Chamber of Commerce type, Trump has been great on pro-life issues. He's been great for business. So the odd thing is that the Republican Party is more united today than I can remember. Right. The Democratic Party is about to fracture in two or three camps. And here's the question for Biden. If you want to find common ground on fixing a broken immigration system, dealing with Section 230, building roads, bridges, and highways and ports, I will meet you in the middle, but if the goal is to transform America like the squad, um, no way. So yeah. he's got he's riding a wild tiger, and how he manages this is yet to be determined if he wins. We will uh, we, we'll be watching. Uh, Senator, as Georgia, always. Let's make sure, let's give the president a chance to fight it out in court. Yeah. It ain't over, and uh, Georgia's a mess, and yeah. let's make sure we win those two Senate seats. All right, Senator Lindsey Graham, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, my friend. All right, uh, folks, and thank you for joining us as well. Again, tune in tonight, 8 p.m., prayvotestand.org. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.